Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy. And this edition, we're going to spend some time at a recent conference in Dublin, wondering if our technologies is good people. Professor Noel Fitzpatrick helps us formulate some answers there. And we'll have Jennifer Walsh, who's been encountering the owl's sod in the game world. But first... A long list of bad reasons to be an artist is at the heart of a collaborative film currently at NCAD's gallery in Thomas Street. The advice comes from a man who for many years occupied the director's office a few staircases above the space, Noel Sheridan. In 1996, the artist Lee Hobber filmed a performance by Sheridan in Australia in which he listed many of the reasons he'd presumably heard from people wanting to join an art world. That film became something of an offline viral hit with later generations of artists, offering a pointed, often hilarious way of thinking through the real role of an artist. Now, collaborators Vary Claffey and Oshin Byrne have invited a group of artists to make their own film responses to Sheridan's provocative 90s declarations. Vary Claffey came to Culturefile Towers for a Noel Sheridan watch party. Don't be an artist if you can think of one other thing that in your heart you believe is better than being an artist. If you can think of another line, whether it's loyal... One of the reasons why this is so close up is because, you know, he's an inveterate smoker. You saw a puff of smoke maybe just coming up behind him. So Lee had to focus really hard in on top of his face because Perth, Pika, was sponsored by... And not was sponsored by a non-smoking organisation, and they couldn't have even the hint of smoke appearing on it. And that's why it's so tight up on Noel's face. I thought it was to give him that sort of Big Brother intensity. That works. Looking down his glasses and pulling really draws us in. But there was like, as often is, a kind of practical reason that became rationale a little bit later. Art is some sort of soft option for losers, and in your case, they're going to be right. He's so loving. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's the whole loving tough guy uh, persona that he had. Like, even just, even as an artist, not to mind just as a director of an institution, like within his own practice, there was a kind of toughness, a kind of demand. uh, Like, he's very charismatic and and charisma has something organised about it, something slightly manipulative. That You know, Kevin Atherton really talks about that, about the draw, the kind of pull in to Noel that he would have, that you'd feel he's utterly focused on you and then utterly as focused as the next person, having forgotten you in the meantime. <laughs> Noel is a, was a character and I think that, that idea of him as a character comes out to a certain extent of his history. So his father was Cecil Sheridan who worked as a variety performer and an actor. Um, Noel himself worked as an actor at first um, and couldn't really find his space so much in Dublin between being under the shadow of this very well-known father and also wanting to kind of expand it. He went to New York um, and was acting and performing and then started making art and hooked into some quite well-known artists and their practice and environment in, in New York um, and came back to Dublin then with his family to be director of NCAD and his practice at the time was quite um, like he was making paintings but he was also making things that are very scrappy now in terms of archive and trying to find out instructions for performances or, or small pieces of um, of acting or small instructive works so that, that was the kind of practice he had then he left Ireland and moved to 
Perth to be the director of PICA of an arts organisation. So he had several kinds of practices that now would be a whole life. Um, it would be difficult now to move in the way that he did, but people do, but to move in the way that he did between the profession of an artist, the profession of a performer, the profession of an educator and the profession of, a, of a, an arts director, curator. Don't be an artist because you believe it's something you're going to get better at in time. Craft and skill are what you get better at. It's always the first time, every time, with art. In fact, if you get too good at your craft, it makes it more difficult for you to make art. This film of Noel's Why Be an Artist would do the rounds as something fresh, maybe every four years or something. And as it was circulating this this last this pertinent time for us, maybe three, th- just over three years ago, um, Oshin Byrne, who's an artist I work with a lot and collaborate with a lot, um, one of his collaborators, Gary Farley, started to mimic Noel's performance, staging performance, and they recorded it. I can't tell you how many times I've said in my head recently, "Don't be an artist." Exactly. So I mean, there's a, you know, there's all these kind of problems with impersonation and riffing off a script and parody, not parody. But we decided between myself and Ushin that there was more in it, and that really that question, because it was circulating, because it was still pertinent, we wanted to bring in other people to address it and make a series of not quite um, talking heads, but a series of films with other artists pulling out, t- teasing out that question. So we've made a collaborative film work together. Don't be an artist because you want to be free. You're free already. When you start to be an artist... Yeah, you're free already. Um, The kind of notion of freedom, I think, is one of the things that feels, if not outdated, at least something that's not so central a subject anymore. The idea of working autonomously as an artist, I think, is shifting somewhat. And he talks a little bit about bureaucracy and getting entangled in bureaucracy. And I think those ideas around those things are are changing quite radically now. Do you mean because of the sort of increased importance of collaborative works? or Yeah, there's been a lot more focus on the possibilities for collaboration. And, you know, within these reputational structures in the art world that he talks about, there's there have been kind of snaps in the orthodoxy of that. So collectives organising documenta, collectives um, winning the Turner Prize, the Turner Prize being collectively won across four different artists. So th- those kinds of breaks into that... <laughs> I think are significant or indicative of a way that practice is just shifting. Just do not be a magician if you cannot be me, which is tricky, actually, because it turns out I'm really all over the place. I'm the dog. You're the dog. We are all the dog. So we asked artists to talk to this question. Why be an artist? Isadora Epstein, who's kind of the, the youngest artist that we invited flipped it um, and to a certain extent hers includes a kind of critique of what Noel says uh, and Noel's kind of figure as this older white man speaking preachingly down his down the nose of his glasses where she changes the word artist to the word magician and includes this other character who's the dog you know maybe it's over an over interpretation of her work but the dog always felt to me like the kind of critic anyway you've got the wrong idea of what it is to be an artist. The person standing over the glasses on the end of the nose or the inner neggy, nagging neggy voice that's at you all the time when you're trying to practice whining and grumbling and moaning. If you can't make these work, well, there may be nothing for it. 
and you may have to be an artist. And best of luck. Noel Sheridan there ending that conversation with Vary Claffey. Why Be an Artist is at the NCAD Gallery until February 15th and Vary Claffey will be giving a talk called Why Be a Curator at the Gallery on Tuesday 7th at 1.15pm. One of the most striking, maybe even alarming, things about the recent Technology and Culture Conference hosted at TUD was its title. Techne, Logos, Care and the open brackets, Neg, close brackets, Anthropocene is not a phrase that rolls easily off the tongue. The conference gathered a network of artists and researchers busily rethinking humans' relationship with technology. And we heard previously from Kathleen Lynch on the care part of things. But our guest this time I'm Noel Fitzpatrick, Professor of Philosophy at TUD and one of the instigators of the European Culture and Technology Lab, which is driving the event, is here to help Culturefile decode that necessarily twisty title. What we're doing is trying to think through these things in a new way. And to do that, sometimes it's, it's really important to use language in a different way. My name is Noel Fitzpatrick. I am a professor of philosophy in the Technological University in Dublin, and I'm the academic lead of a new European research laboratory, which is called the European Culture and Technology Laboratory. The difficulty is that the terms sometimes seem to be very off-putting or can seem to be a little bit odd, but what we're trying to do is kind of think through things in a different way. Well, I suppose we're using the term laboratory on purpose. It's it's an experimental platform which is looking at the relationship between technology and society. For me, it was kind of a key aspect of it was to have the word culture in the title. So an understanding that technology is something that comes from a particular environment and that environment is also economic, social, political and cultural. And the event we're at here is one expression of of, uh, of the aims of that of that consortium. F- first, you might help people with the title, which is um, Techne Logos Care and the Neg Anthropocene. It is a title which, uh, as you said, really kind of trips off your tongue a little bit. Within it, there's there's a few things. First of all, it, there is the concept of techne, and techne comes from the original Greek ancient Greek understanding. So by using the term techne, what we're trying to do is make a distinction between contemporary understandings of technology and a a widening of that understanding of technology to include all forms of techniques, practices. In the building that we're in here is the building for the, I suppose, the creative performing arts. So for me, the term techne enables us to broaden out an understanding of technology as a tool but also as a form of becoming human. So through techne, through all forms of techniques and practices, we become who we are. So that's the first term. So it's, uh, I suppose it's an opposition between an understanding of technology as a tool or an instrument and technology as a techne, as a way of becoming who we are. So human is a form of technical life. And that's uh, related to Martin Heidegger's kind of way of seeing techne. Exactly, yes. So it's kind of like, I suppose, within contemporary philosophy, we've had um, a lot of discussion around Heidegger's text from 1953, which is called The Question Concerning Technology. The um, current contemporary debates within philosophy is to say that we have to move away from this 
essentialist understanding of the question of what is technology with a capital T, and to look at the material practices in the world, which are technologies which are plural. So that's sometimes referred to as the material turn in philosophy of technology, where we're starting to look at the actual practices in the world rather than questions of the essence of technology. This is, um, you know, not a casual question for a new university that is a technological university. I mean, you're, you're starting the, the university's work by saying, well, what is technical? Yeah, and what is technology? So one of the ways that I like to think about it is that when we, we make a distinction between a technological university is to say that in the word technological, we have techne and logos. So the second term, logos, is all forms of discourse, even symbolic representations of what technology is. That's a form of logos. So again, from ancient Greek, logos is parole or speech. So any type of uh, discourse or speech about technology is a form of logos. So technologos or technology are all those forms of mediations or understandings of technology, which are not just the technical objects in themselves. Uh, the question within a technological university, I would argue, is how do we have that expanded understanding of technology? So that includes its relationship to society, its impact on society. So technology is not built in a vacuum, it's built in and for society. So that's the first term in the title, which brings us very uh, precisely to the second one, which is care, which is a, an expanding field of thought. But something in the conference is about integrating the thing we've just spoken about with ideas of care. Yeah, so if we ask the question, if we take that expanded understanding of um, technology as techne, and we understand that we are part of that process, that we are influenced by technology and we influence technology, then the question of what does it mean to be human is at the forefront. So the question of what it means to be human is a question of how do we take care of ourselves. And that question of care, therefore, is embedded within what we understand by techne. And going back to Martin Heidegger, Martin Heidegger would have an understanding of technology and techne, which would have care embedded in it. So techne is a form of thinking and a form of care. So in the title of the conference, I suppose we discourses or debates around how do we take care of ourselves through technology came to the fore. So within the, the current crisis of, of climate change, how do we have more careful technologies? Can we care about ourselves and the other and the planet through other forms of technology? And one of the people who's been um, sort of at the forefront in thinking about that is Bernard Stiegler, a person you're very interested in. And has, he, he sort of supplies the third part of the title because we haven't even got to the end of the conference title yet. Yeah, so, yeah, Bernard, is somebody, yeah, so Bernard wrote uh, a book called uh, The Neganthropocene. And in it, what he was pointing to was that if we take the concept of the Anthropocene and say... In the concept, you have the term anthropos, so which is the human. And the Anthropocene literally means the new era of, of the human. And in that new era of the human, what we're seeing is our impact on the planet. So the anthropos, the human, is having a profound impact on the geological structures of the planet. And that's where the term Anthropocene comes from. 
It actually comes from a Nobel Prize winner in, in chemistry who found the ozone layer. And what uh, Bernard Stiegler was pointing to is that we have to come up with counter propositions or counter activities which we could negate this human activity which is having a negative impact on the planet and think of it differently as a form of negantropocene, so to negate that, that process. a little bit about what happens at what you're trying to do with the conference because it feels like it is a very engaged uh, project. What we have in, in the background is a, a new university which is not just the technological university here in Dublin but it's a European university which is called the European University of Technology and within it we have the opportunity to position these questions of technology and society in a very unusual way because in what we're trying to do is influence engineering education influenced the way in which technologies are being built and thought through. We had a very interesting um, demonstration given by the students in Paris in, in, in June. Final year students from Paris Agrotech went up to get their diplomas, to get the big handshake and get a pat on the back and they actually stood up and said we don't want to take our degrees because we think we should change the way in which engineering is being thought. So what they asked for was a form of bifurcation, to take the title of the book from, from Bernard Stiegler, and they asked to bifurcate, they asked that the curriculum be changed. So in one way, your, your comment is, is correct. This is a very engaged process. So the, the question that we're asking is one around ethics also. So it's how do we have, uh, how do we teach ethics in technological education? And one of the criticisms at the moment is we have a form of applied ethics which is being used. And sometimes that's reduced to questions of standardization. And the argument is because technological change is happening so quickly, those applied ethical frameworks don't actually function anymore. So we have to come up with a new way of thinking about ethics. And that new way is what I would call a form of virtue ethics. So instead of teaching people about particular ethical, concrete uh, standards within their technological uh, education is to think through questions about what does it mean to live the good life, what these old virtuous questions are the questions that we need to ask. So it's a, it's an, it's a different understanding of ethics and technology. One of the interesting points is that technical education has already a an ethical component like this is it hasn't just been introduced in the last few years but somehow it seems to fail to flavor the technology yeah that i think and i think a really good example is around artificial intelligence at the moment so we have within europe we have new guidelines and standards ethical standards around artificial intelligence but the issue is that if we take a, a framework like medical ethics and we try and transpose that into something which is called artificial intelligence and ethics, it doesn't work. And why it doesn't work is because within medical ethics, we have a kind of uh, a positioning which has been made that somebody who takes the Hippocratic Oath has already decided that what they're trying to do is care for the person in front of them. So medical ethics has a kind of has a forms of professional practice which happen in a particular way. Whereas in artificial intelligence, we're dealing with companies who are there 
to, to make money. So their positioning is not really about how do we care for the other, but how does the other become a consumer of the product that I'm trying to make. And within debates within ethics and artificial intelligence at the moment, is it's that shifting where we have to move away from questions of applied ethics and say, well, that doesn't work anymore. So can we ask these much bigger questions around virtue ethics? Positioning the question of care at the centre enables us to think through how these technologies could be used in going back to Stiegler in a more therapeutic way. How can they, how can they be used as processes of care? At the moment, I think it's very easy to get into debates which are either technophobic, so you know we're going to throw out all the technology, or we're going to have a kind of form of technophilia, which would be a kind of form of techno solutionism. And I think we have to be able to nuance that debate much more clearly by saying it's only through processes of technology that we're going to be able to put in these new forms of, of caring. And then we could think of the, the origin of the word, one of the etymologies of education is educare or educere. So within education, there is the term care already. But I think the, the challenge is one around the political economy. We have to think through the relationship between technological education and employment and the positioning of the university within that. So it's trying to have a university which is much more inclusive is one aspect of caring. And then when the curriculum itself is to ask those questions around the relationship between technological innovation and society in a way which is much more uh, non-profit driven, but maybe interested in those questions of how technology can be used in, in ways which are, which are much more positive. Can we have forms of uh, technology which are different to the models which are in place? So we have a, in one way, simplistic way, we could say we have a, an American Californian understanding of how digital technologies work. And then we have in China, we have another form of understanding how uh, technologies could be used for surveillance or control. So can we have one which is a European understanding of technology? The slight problem there, of course, is that the, the American uh, branch has its own industry and the Chinese branch has its own industry and the, the branch of the technology industry in Europe is very undernourished and underdeveloped. That's, yeah, but I think going back to kind of the philosophical aspect is to say, could we have new forms of technology which are, I don't want to use the kind of over-essentialized term like European, American or Chinese, but to say, could we have new forms of technologies which can be used for the betterment of society? Easy to say as we don't actually ha own any of these technologies at the moment. Yeah, yeah, we don't. But can can we? You know, well, I suppose we could we could think of maybe more experimental formats. Could we have uh, social media platforms which are which are doing something different, which could be more about maybe the social engagement than using it to extract value and data from? It? So can we can we think through through these things in different ways? At the moment, uh, you know. You could say, well, where's the proof? What it, what's happened so far? Well, I think at the moment we can see that there's a shift away from these forms of uh, social extractivism that take place in social media. So I, I always remember 10, 12 years ago when I began to say, when a group of us began to think through a critique of social media. At the time, it seemed to be very avant-garde, whereas now I think it's actually part of public discourse that people realise that there are negative aspects to the use of these particular platforms.
Noel Fitzpatrick, Professor of Philosophy at TUD there on a big rethink. And we'll have more from that conference in future Culture Files. And finally on this week's Culture File Weekly, for her latest correspondence, composer and artist Jennifer Walsh has been looking down, if not to the soil beneath our feet, at least to a screen on which it's represented. This is Jennifer Walsh's Things Know Things. Farming Simulator 22 is arguably the most popular farming simulation game in the world. Made by Giants Software, the game has been around since 2008, with a fan base that numbers in the millions and an army of influencers, many of them farmers and ex-farmers who post on a daily basis. As a player of Farming Simulator 22, you get to run a farm, where you can do everything from planting crops and raising livestock to riding horses and petting dogs. You can plant wheat, watch it grow, then harvest it and drive it to a mill, where it'll be turned into flour, which you can then sell to a baker. You can build glasshouses in the depths of winter and raise strawberries. You can sit and watch the beauty of the game's motion graphics in the way the wind moves across a field of grass dappled with wildflowers. And you can do all of this from the cab of a digital version of a state-of-the-art, epically huge German combine harvester which costs half a million euros in the real world. I open up Farming Simulator, step out in front of my farm and immediately begin to feel calmer. It's a beautiful morning. The sun is high in a cloudless sky. My plan is to plough two of my fields, then start on the laborious task of collecting soil samples so I can build a soil map of my land. I could buy a soil map for an in-game fee, but I prefer doing it myself using virtual versions of the John Deere Gator Utility Vehicle and Isaria Scout to gather soil samples which will be analysed in a lab for pH level and nitrogen content. I can then treat every square metre of my fields in a targeted way with lime and fertiliser to maximise yield. The more money I make the more lab reports I can afford and the more data I have, the more expensive digital farm machinery I'll be able to buy. Curiously enough, this option to pursue what is called precision farming wasn't invented by Giants Software. It's an in-game initiative spearheaded by the European Institute for Innovation and Technology, aided by several universities and agri-tech global player John Deere. Because precision farming is a real-world phenomenon which uses tech to not only maximise yield but also minimise the environmental impact of farming. Farmers who use precision farming use less fertiliser and water. And it turns out the EU are so keen for more farmers to precision farm in real life that they're doing outreach in farming simulation games. Players of Farming Simulator 22 turn to the game for many reasons. Distraction, relaxation, community, another income stream. For many players, it's a way to connect to the real places they live or used to live. There are mods you can download based on the Leitrim landscape where you can change all the licence plates to Irish. 
There are stories of farmers who lost their farms because of financial difficulties and built lovingly detailed virtual versions of those farms inside the game. But as soothing as it is to carefully wrap digital silage bales, the draw of Farming Simulator 22 for me is that it shows me the nature of the world we live in now, where the digital and the real are very much intermingled. A world where advice about how to manage the real earth beneath our feet is best planted in our minds by getting us to analyse virtual soil. Jennifer Walsh there, getting digital mud on her boots and bringing to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more cybernetic sods next Saturday tea time, and even sooner if you follow us on one of the frankly breathtaking number of alternative podcast platforms. Till then, bye now.